So Genesis 37, page 28 in the Bibles. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaths gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came back to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes he went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to the father and said, 
We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. One of the scary things about being a parent is that your kids become like you. (laughs) These days, sometimes at home, I'm midway through some rant and I catch myself and it's almost like I can hear my dad's voice coming from somewhere. But then I realise it's me speaking. And I have this moment of dread where I realise that it's finally happened. I've become my father. Early on in my marriage, I, I, I learnt the lesson that it's never actually okay to say that to your spouse, by the way. You're just like your mum, even if it's true, even if you mean it in a neutral way or it's just a, a funny quirk, it's never okay to say it. If you're newly married, I've saved you a whole lot of counselling. Now, some things we pass on to our kids, they're just neutral things, you know, like the funny quirks, but some things actually that we pass on are a lot deeper and darker, like we can pass on our own unique expressions of selfishness, greed or pride or callousness, prejudice, anger, emotional repression. Sometimes these things can have an impact that goes on down the generations. And even when we decide that we're not going to repeat the mistakes of our parents, somehow we can still fall into them. The problem is that each and every generation is deeply flawed. Each and every generation is messed up. And it'd be great if humanity just got better and better with each generation. It'd be great if we could just build on the shoulders of of the previous generations. But unfortunately, unfortunately, that just doesn't happen easily. We pass on the good, but we also pass on the bad. We see this today with Jacob's family, which we've been hearing about just now, read. This year, as Scott's reminded us, in in the school holidays, where we've been looking at the beginning of God's people, we've been returning to this series. We're jumping back almost 4,000 years in history. We've been looking at the book of Genesis, where God chooses just one family out of all the families in the earth, And God promises to undo the mess of of his world and and bless the entire world through this one family. But if we thought this was going to happen easily, or even bit by bit, with each generation getting better and better, then we need to think again. In fact, we're only up to the the fourth generation of this family that God's chosen, but already it's, it's getting a bit tiring watching the same mistakes, the same problems repeat themselves. And you start to wonder, how is God going to use this family to undo the mess in his world when there's plenty of mess that needs undoing so close to home? Last holidays, you might remember that we saw how God worked in Jacob's life across decades to change him. Jacob was someone who looked out for himself. His name meant deceiver and he had adopted that identity onto himself. He took it on. If he saw something that he wanted, he grasped at it and then he made a run for it. But remember, 
God brought Jacob to that point where he could no longer run, either literally or metaphorically. And instead of grasping for himself, he reached a point where he could only trust in God to fight for him. God radically transformed Jacob and even changed his name to Israel. And it would be great if it was all smooth sailing for God's people from then onwards. It would be great if they lived happily ever after. But that's not the way it went, unfortunately. Because Jacob, he may have been changed, but he still wasn't perfect. And his kids were far from perfect. And the problems and the conflicts of the past didn't stop with Jacob. He passes them on to his kids. And so the rest of Genesis is about God's work in this fourth generation. And it's about God's work through them as he unfolds his plan to undo the mess in this world and to bring blessing instead. Today, we really just get to begin to see this fourth generation. And really, we only just get to see the problems more than anything. We get a taste of them. We don't really get to see the progress that God is making in these people. So let's get into it and have a look at how the story starts. The story of Jacob, it's all about his kids and especially Joseph. So look at verse 2 with me. We read, This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Now you might remember the, the family life of Jacob's pretty messed up. He has four wives and two of them are sisters and don't get along. Jacob, he was the son of, of sorry, Joseph, he was the son of Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel. And because Rachel had had trouble falling pregnant, Joseph was a fair bit younger than, um, than his half-brothers. He was born much later. And so the story starts with him as a 17-year-old, but his half-brothers are much, much older. So imagine how it would have gone down when in verse 2 we read that Joseph brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now clearly there are some serious problems in this family. Do you remember that Jacob was scarred by Esau being his father's favourite and him being his mother's favourite. That was his family context with devastating consequences. It played out awfully in his life and yet here is Jacob passing on the same problem down the generations. Things are not good in this family but they get worse. Look at verse 6. Joseph has a dream and he shares it with his brothers. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now I'm not sure why Joseph thought sharing his dream would be a a, a good idea. You kind of get the picture that this 17-year-old is a little bit full of himself. His brothers say to him in verse 8, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And either he's missing the clear social cues that his brothers aren't really enjoying hearing about these dreams or 
Maybe he's um, actually enjoying their discomfort. But in verse 9, when he has another dream, again, he tells them all about it. He says, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Things are pretty tense in this family. Not only is Joseph his dad's favourite, but he's dobbing on his brothers. And now he's having dreams about ruling over his brothers and even dreams about ruling over his father. And he's either incredibly naive and thinks that everyone wants to hear about how great he is or he's incredibly full of himself. Or maybe it's a bit of both. Whatever the case may be, his brothers think that he's got plans to rule over them. And they're not going to let that happen, not without a fight, as we see in what happens next. So little Joseph is again sent to check up on his brothers. But when they see him coming, they say in verse 20, Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. See that? It's particularly his dreams of him ruling over them that sparks such a violent reaction from them. And they figure that Joseph can't rule over them if he's dead. It's pretty good logic, right? It's pretty drastic, though. It's pretty ruthless. It's heartless and it's evil. But maybe they're, they're thinking, what choice do they have? Jacob seems bent on installing Joseph over the top of them. He's already sending them to check up on them all the time. And remember, Jacob himself was the younger of the two brothers, and yet he ended up as the greater one. Maybe Jacob's trying to do the same thing with Joseph. And so the brothers plot to crush Joseph's ego and his dreams. I guess they must have figured that his dreams were his own invention. And it's sad, but it's true that when everyone else is saying the same thing, evil can sound logical and even like the right thing to do when everyone else is saying it. You see this these days on the, on the level of friends, um, even at school, something like that, when everyone else is bullying another kid, it seems like the right thing to do. Or using drugs, the group mentality seems to make it right. But you also see this on a cultural level as well, across the ages. Racism, slavery, infanticide, they seemed right to people at the time because everyone said so. It's not like we're any better today. We've perfected the art of deciding what's right and wrong by the mob who shout down different opinions on social media. When everyone else is saying that something is necessary, it's logical, it's the right thing to do, whether it's same-sex marriage, locking up asylum seekers, or the eradication of the concept of gender... It's incredibly hard at that point to stand against the tide. But I'm getting distracted from the story. Because in our story, there is actually one person who stands against the tide. Look at verse 21. When Reuben heard this, their plan to kill Joseph, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them. 
and take him back to his father. He sort of stands against the tide, doesn't he? But he doesn't directly confront them. He doesn't tell them to stop plotting evil. He has his own secret plan to rescue Joseph, maybe out of pure motives, but maybe because he's the oldest and the buck's going to stop with him if something happens to Joseph. But because he doesn't stand up clearly for what's right and confront them straight up, something tragic happens through a series of horrible coincidences. A caravan of traders comes past on their way to Egypt. What are the chances of them crossing paths at this critical point? And then as it turns out, right at this moment, Reuben isn't there. He's off somewhere else, maybe moving the sheep or something like that. And just as this caravan comes by, Judah, the third oldest son, and in many ways a leader amongst his brother, he has a brainwave. He says in verse 26, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brother's agreed. Judah, he takes up Reuben's logic about not shedding their brother's blood, but he also sees a way that they can gain from the situation. If they sell him as a slave, they don't have to kill him, and they can profit from their actions, and everyone's happy, right? Judah thinks because he's taking the option that's, that's not as bad as the other option, that it makes it more okay. There's some pretty mixed up ethics going on all around and Reuben's failure to take a strong stand earlier and then Judah's willingness to settle with the less evil option it leads to this tragic outcome they sell their brother into slavery and then when Reuben sneaks back to the cistern and and finds that Joseph's gone he freaks out and so they come up with a plan for how they can cover up what they've done verse 31 then they got Joseph's robe slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine, examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And the plan works. Jacob tears his clothes and he mourns for Joseph. And in verse 35, all his sons and daughters come to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. It's pretty sad because surely part of their plan, part of the reason they did what they did was because they hoped in a way to gain back their father by getting rid of the favourite. But instead, they just lose him in a different way. It's a tragic story. An old man is tormented. A former deceiver is himself deceived yet again. And his sons have to bear a guilty conscience for a long, long time. Now, if you're going to look for parenting inspiration or guidance on on how to be a godly family, please don't come to this chapter in the Bible, unless you're coming there to see what not to do, because this chapter is not going to help you. Now, the passage does say some things to us, like polygamy is not a good idea, or um, marrying sisters is especially not a good idea. But I'm hoping you already knew that, okay? This passage also shows us that favouritism in a family is a destructive evil that will destroy a family. And it shows us that if we're not careful, we will pass on the same destructive ways of living down the generations, just like Jacob passed on favouritism 
and deception. All of these things are true and they're, and they're valuable things that we maybe could or should take away from this chapter. But none of these things are the main thing that we should take away from this story. And if we get caught up on, on those points only, then we'll miss the bigger story that's unfolding here. The bigger story that's unfolding is God's story. It's the story of, of how God is going to use this family to bring about his purposes for the world. But it's really hard to see how God is going to use this family to undo the mess in his world when there's so much mess so close to home that seems to be standing in his way. In fact, since this is God's story, it makes you wonder, where exactly is God in this story? Does he even have a plan here? God, he, he spoke directly to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but God doesn't seem to be speaking in this chapter. He doesn't even seem to be present. It feels like God is silent and unable to intervene. But actually, this is close to the point of the story. In this story, we're learning about the kind of people that God chooses to work through. We're learning about the kind of people that God chooses to work through. And we learn about the way God chooses to work in their lives. The thing about God, the thing about the way He works, is that He's content to unfold His plans over decades. He's content to unfold His purposes for people over years and years. And He's happy to unfold His plans for the world over centuries and millennia. This is not the end of Joseph's story. It's not the end of Judah's story. There's a lot more of this story yet to come, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that these evil events are not beyond God's control. It's the opposite. The opposite is true. God is actually bringing about His promises to Abraham, even through these tragic events. With God, there are no coincidences. Reuben saving Joseph's life but failing to rescue him. That wasn't a coincidence. The caravan arriving at that critical point in time when Reuben was away. That wasn't a coincidence. God was watching over all these events to bring about something huge. This is the way that God works. He's always in control. He's never at the mercy of our bad decisions or at the mercy of our, our bad hearts. Instead, in His mercy, He brings about His good plans even through the mess and the mistakes of our lives. See, Joseph, as a 17-year-old, he seemed to be making the same mistakes as his father. He, he seemed to be seeking his own glory. But you know, if Joseph interpreted his dreams as him ruling over his brothers, then he didn't interpret them grandly enough. God had bigger plans than that. He wouldn't have simply his, his brothers bowing down to him. He would have the whole known world bowing down to him. But it wouldn't be for his own self-glory. It would be for the salvation of God's people and for the blessing of the world. And it was only going to happen after Joseph first walked the hard, lonely, lowly road of suffering. That's how God works. We also learn about the kind of people God chooses to work with here. See, we're not supposed to look at Joseph and Reuben and Judah and think, wow, what great people. We're supposed to look at them and think, what a great God that He can take people like them and make something beautiful. 
The mess of Jacob and his sons shows us that what matters in the progress of God's people is God. God isn't limited by their imperfection. And he isn't limited by our imperfection either. This is a constant theme in the Bible. The Apostle Paul tells us that this is the kind of people that God chooses to work with. In 1 Corinthians one twenty six, about Christians, just like us, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's us. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may may boast before him. Through the messed up family of Abraham, God was unfolding a plan to restore his world, a, a plan that he was unfolding over a couple of thousand years, a plan that was always moving towards Jesus and it was always about Jesus saving messed up people by dying for them on the cross. That's who God chooses. That's how he chooses to work. And like God was at work in the life of Joseph and his brothers, even behind the scenes, even though they're messed up people, in the same way, God works in our lives. God makes us into something beautiful, whether we can see his hand at work or not. He does it as we give our lives to Jesus. He does it in his own time. And he does it despite our evil decisions, even through them. And he often does it via the hard road of lowly suffering. But there's never one point, never any point in our lives where God's not in control. There's never any point where he's absent from the story. You know, probably the biggest thing that stops people from following Jesus is not that they don't believe in God, because you can find evidence for God pretty easily. It's not that they don't like Jesus, because again, it's pretty easy to see why Jesus is amazing. The biggest thing that stops people from following Jesus is that we don't see our need for a Lord and a Saviour. And we don't see our need because we don't see ourselves as messed up. We don't see ourselves as broken. We don't see ourselves as, as sinners facing an angry God. But we are. And you know, the biggest thing that stops those of us who are already following Jesus from being transformed to be more like him is the same thing. The biggest thing that holds us back in our progress in becoming more like Jesus is that we stop seeing ourselves as broken we stop seeing ourselves as people in need of a savior but we still are the story of joseph and his brothers and and so many stories from the bible they remind us that there are only two types of people in this world the sick who think they're healthy and the sick who know they need a doctor god's plan had always been that Jesus would be the one to undo the mess of this world and to bring the blessing. God's plan was always that Jesus would be the doctor who gave up his life for the sick, for people like us, to save us and to transform us into Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for the kind of God you are, that you choose to work with us, flawed people, broken people, sinful people. Lord, we thank you that across the ages, across history, you've chosen to save people like us and to transform us to be more and more like Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is always in control, always at work, and that there is never a point, no matter how dark our lives are, no matter what dark valley we're walking through, there is never a point where you abandon us. You are always with us, always in control, and always bringing good even out of hard and terrible situations. We thank you, Lord, that we can know this because Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, died for us on the cross And that because he gave his life for us, there is nothing that you will not give for us to bring us into your kingdom as your people made into the likeness of Christ. We thank you so much for this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.